Welcome to Pathfinders, a podcast series from RBC Capital Markets, where we uncover the key trends and catalysts shaping the fast-moving world of biotech and pharma. I'm your host, Joe Coletti. In today's episode, we're sharing a conversation with you taken from our private healthcare company conference, featuring commentary from John Hoffman and Jason Levitz, co-heads of RBC's Healthcare Equity Capital Markets Group. They'll share their insights on a variety of topics, such as market divergence, biotech innovation, regulatory tailwinds, valuation challenges, ESG, digital transformation, and they'll talk about how each are reshaping transactions across the industry. They also reveal their outlook for 2024 and explore the evolving role of private equity investors, the importance of optionality and creativity, and potential deals in the pipeline across different subsectors in the year ahead. Let's dive right into their conversation. Well, good afternoon, everybody. This is uh, John Hoffman speaking, co-head of RBC's Healthcare Equity Capital Markets with my partner, Jason Levitz, the other co-head of Healthcare ECM here at RBC. What we thought we would do uh, this afternoon is spend a bit of time just having a candid discussion between Jason and myself, talking about key themes and trends that we're speaking to investors about, key topics that are on top of mind for, for companies, and a bit of an outlook for 2024 and what we can expect for the months to come from a capital markets perspective. If 2023 could be summed up with a, a simple phrase or characterization, it's clearly been a tale of two cities. I think historically, when I've heard that moniker used to describe a certain market environment, oftentimes it uh, pertains to the front half of the year behaving different than the back half of the year or vice versa. Here this year, it was actually intra-calendar year, lots of different trends going on, a dichotomy between those two trends in a few stark ways. For one, for a couple of statistics, you had the S&P that was up 21%, but the S&P healthcare index down 2% on the year. You had equity volumes that were up 55% year on year, but IPO issuance volumes that still sit 70 or 80% below uh, the pre-COVID trends that we saw in that market. And while there was a little bit of a resurgence in the IPO activity from some higher profile issuers, the aftermarket outcomes for those companies have been somewhat measured or, or even anemic, only posting a 3.9% offer to current. So while there was lots to, to unpack in those statistics and, and how the markets behave, it's certainly been a very eventful year and it's felt like there's a lot more to do. And I think Hopefully that's a harbinger for things to come. Jason, I'll, I'll post the first question to you. When we reflect on statistics like the ones that I just read off, what's most surprising to you or what do you think some of the key takeaways are? Yeah, and thanks. I'm actually fairly shocked that we haven't seen a broader rebound in the IPO market. I think a lot of John's high-level commentary and, and Tale of Two Cities analogy is, is quite interesting. I think another point you can add is looking at the S&P on a weighted basis relative to the unweighted index, which if you look at the performance gap is about 13%, or you look at the Russell 2000 index, very good proxy for smaller cap performance, which has also been anemic. I think that index is up six or so percent. So, so that performance gap between whether it's the Magnificent Seven or just large caps and, and small caps, which is where obviously we spend a lot of our time, has been a striking dichotomy. And I think that continues to kind of nag at investors that are looking to move out the risk curve and, and focus on the IPO market. I'm quite surprised that we haven't seen the market snap back in, in, in earnest more quickly. We're kind of nine quarters in now of really more of an IPO activity. But you're looking this year at kind of roughly 30 IPOs last year, similar quantum. And then the last point is the interest rate environment. And you know, with the Fed having tightened through really the last couple of years at, at a very aggressive clip, certainly in the context of recent history, you would say that, okay, well, that's just given 
you know, competing assets, whether it's risk-free rate or looking at credit investments or others that are now generating a more attractive return relative to how you think about the IPO market and potential returns there. But if you roll back even further and you look back to say the mid 90s or early 90s, I should say, when when the rate environment was similar or even more punitive than it is today, you still saw substantially greater IPO activity than you're seeing now. But I do think a pivot by the Fed will be an important catalyst and when that comes. And if that's mid-year next year, I think that bodes well for back half of 24, but we are where we are. Yeah, it does very much feel like there's a little bit of a groundswell of tailwinds that will make for a much more constructive new issue environment and receptivity for new issues. I think one of the underappreciated dynamics that's occurred this year has been the return of the active manager and their ability to outperform in a volatile market environment. It's something like approximately 60% of active managers have outperformed. And I think anecdotally, we hear every day around uh, fund managers that have really uh, been overlevered to some of the outsized either takeouts or clinical catalysts that have had very substantial return profiles in the public markets, which is clearly one of those dynamics that is a necessary ingredient to laying the groundwork for that more robust receptivity in, in 2024. Uh, I think one of the other questions that we're often asked by investors that's a little bit of a leading indicator of just how active do we all think the market will be next year on the, uh, on the capital markets side is where do we expect issuance to come from within the different healthcare subverticals? My view is, at least for the first part of next year, I think we'll see what amounts to a bit of more of the same. So likely to see biotech companies who have a fairly predictable playbook around what ultimately works in the public markets as those companies grow into their clinical catalyst calendar and have kind of step function like changes in their potential valuation paradigms versus other subsectors where it may take a little bit more time for certain companies to grow into some of the historical valuations that were achieved in the private markets prior to 2023. So I do think that we'll still see the biotech calendar continue to dominate. But beyond that, there's a number of other subplots that I think make for a really interesting backdrop for some of the non-biotech related healthcare subverticals. One, for instance, is the, the deconsolidation of certain businesses. Uh, I think we're seeing that take place in the tool space right now where you've got a bit of a forcing function with the Illumina Grail and dynamic playing out in the public markets. Having a public market company like Grail earthed into the public markets with a unique valuation framework in a very important space, I think if those anecdotal transactions or, or potential outcomes like that could really lay the groundwork for more substantial activity in some other subverticals that have really not seen the same level of activity as we've seen in biotech, which has been phenomenally per persistent throughout the course of the market cycle that we've seen. Jason, I don't know if you have any other perspectives on where we may see other uh, areas of issuance, but at least from my perspective, we, we should start to see some diversity uh, creep into the calendar throughout the course of 24. Yeah, no, totally agree. But I think you know, the other vector obviously is what are the large investors in these private companies across the healthcare spectrum doing with with their portfolio companies? And you know, one of the things we we talk a lot about just is pressure on venture capitalists, growth equity investors, and traditional private equity to generate returns and, and return capital to to fees. And that's certainly an issue. I, I'd say that that spans. The market more broadly than healthcare. And I think depending on the investor subcategory obviously has a big impact on IPO activity and expectations within healthcare. So obviously I would say in kind of traditional healthcare services where there are 
and we'll talk more about this, a lot of, I think, private equity investors are, are looking for ways, especially for companies in, in older ventures funds where, where they may not have more capital to put to work. And there are options like continuation funds, but short of that, uh, I think there will be some pressure in 24. And we already know that there's a building pipeline of potential companies in that category. And I think when you get to, to growth equity uh, and venture capital, I think certainly those investors, I think, will feel similar pressure and there will be inertia, you know, once the market opens in some of those other categories. And I think we should talk more when we get, you know, later on in the presentation, because we'll spend a lot of time on biotech, obviously, just given the velocity of activity and a number of private companies in that space in particular. But I would say, you know, more generally, thematically, I, I really hope and expect to see more activity from some of the other sub-verticals for, for some of the reasons Sean mentioned. And, and, and also, again, on the investor side, I think that there'll be more interest and in, if not pressure to, to, to take some of those companies public, you know, that could create other monetization events also, which we can talk about. But I think certainly IPOs are, are one path that investors will be particularly focused on for, for companies and some of those other sub-verticals. Yeah. I mean, the nice thing about healthcare is that there's distinct investor groups to pursue for each of the different subverticals. It's not an either or dynamic where you need biotech activity to recede to make room for, for other subverticals. I'd actually argue the contrary when you look at some of the statistics for the biotech secondary as of late, that is companies issuing follow-on offerings. The performance has been almost IPO-like. On a, on a weighted basis, we pulled the statistics on how follow-ons have performed this year. And I think on an average offer-to-current basis, transactions are up circa 15% percent, which is, which is just a, an excellent return profile, particularly given the fact that those companies that have ad access in a sizable way to the follow-on market tend to be those that have been outperforming year to date and have further expanded their outperformance through the sizable financings that they've been able to achieve. I'd always argue that the, the capital markets tend to have a dynamic where success begets success. And with the good receptivity we've seen towards some of these secondary transactions within the biotech tape, would expect that to continue in spades in, in the first half of next year. By my count, something like 38% of all primary issuance this year came from the biotech sector, which is, again, just kind of a staggering statistic when you, you think about the diversity of different areas that investors could direct their capital towards. The other interesting dynamic around the, the secondary side of things with biotech follow-ons is the absolute pricing that they've been able to achieve, notwithstanding the volatility that we lived through, has been, by historical metrics, very robust. On average, transactions are pricing down at around 5%, where if you were to compare that to historical outcomes, they've typically tracked towards a high single-digit type framework. So better, more, better aftermarket performance, tighter pricing, an already robust backdrop that suggests that there's a real depth in the market to absorb the amount of supply that we've seen on the biotech secondary side. Again, I think that all points towards a uh, robust calendar into, into the first half of next year that hopefully, again, lays the groundwork for more capital markets and transactions across different subverticals, but then also across different products to come when, when we hit next year. Yeah, I'd say one, you know, one, one interesting point and, you know, when we reflect on, you know, other points in time, because certainly over the last 10 years, there have been periods where the biotech IPO market in particular has been closed and there have been windows of opportunity. And I think historically, we like to say that 
follow on market and performance is probably the best leading indicator for a return to IPO activity, right? Just because somewhat slightly lower risk asset class, quote unquote, when you see good performance there, investors get more comfortable out on the risk curve. I think the reason, at least in part, it hasn't been is because notwithstanding John's point about activity levels and performance, you might say, okay, well, that precursor is there. Why haven't we seen more IPOs? I think in part, and we hear this anecdotally from investors vis-a-vis the private market, but I think it also certainly holds with respect to potential IPO opportunities, is that there are now so many public biotech companies that have market caps, frankly, at or even below where a traditional IPO would come. And because there are so many of these companies and they're trading in many cases at, at cash or below, I think investors have seen the follow-on asset class, so to speak, as as somewhat of a replacement for, for potential IPO activity because the return opportunities, I would argue, were as good or frankly even better in some of these cases. I certainly think we're, we're getting to closer to the end of that cycle, not to say there aren't interesting small cap public opportunities, but I don't think we're at a point anymore where we're really going to cannibalize the IPO calendar into 24. I think as a number of the processes that we've run, you know, it, it, Kind of had to think through how do you convince an investor in what was a bit of a liquidity constrained environment to sell one to buy one or allocate new capital to a new opportunity whether it be a publicly listed follow-on for a company that was trading at a dislocated value or for the handful of ipos that came in an ipo setting i think the other important ingredient that will precede a ramp up in ipo activity is a high conviction belief or a consensus view that the biotech sector has reached a durable bottom. We've done a lot of different fundamental analysis on this, and and it's one of the the favorite analyses that we've had the team put together is just trying to take a top-down macro view on the XBI as a whole to justify where we were trading at different time points. When you take that macro math and you juxtapose it with some of the other analytics that we do, where you you kind of look at what uh, some investors are doing with respect to the take private transactions of the cash shells, et cetera, I think those are all explicit signs that hopefully we have reached that bottom here and we can start to get people to focus on new opportunities in a pronounced way. Yeah, one one other, you know, point I reflect on vis-a-vis the the SBI, which and, and there are always some challenges there on really assessing how good a proxy it is, but but certainly it is an important one. But I certainly remember back uh, in, in other periods of dislocation for small cap biotech, we used to look at the XBI versus, let's say, the, the IBB or the, the NYSE Biotech Index. Pretty interesting to see that there hasn't been much separation between those two indices, meaning that, you know, unfortunately, the large caps haven't, haven't performed as well either. But I do think when you see that kind of uniformity across the sector, hopefully it, it, it could be another potential leading indicator for, for a bottom yeah. and a move higher for kind of you know, companies across the, the biotech space. Why don't we spend a minute talking about some of the other sub-verticals and, and what the outlook may look like for those. I, I mentioned before, there's, there's that high-profile grail transaction that's that's taking shape, and clearly we'll, that'll have a read-through for companies that broadly operate in the med tech tools and, and tech space. What do you think about that sub-vertical in particular? What does it take to get that market moving in a more active way? Yeah, I think there's there's certainly, as I think we'll both agree, yeah, need to see kind of a broader rebound in, in biotech and you know, small cap growth IPOs. I, I would look in part also to the tech sector and you know, some of the, the challenges that those sub verticals face are one that there's probably less discrete capital attached to those investment opportunities. So it's a little trickier to navigate in private and public market context, you know, to get to those investors to get the right deals done. Um, I think those companies, because 
they also tend to be, and I think will have to be in this next cycle, certainly commercial stage largely, and also in a position where they've got a meaningful revenue run rate. And, and the other piece to the puzzle just around these sectors is there's a bit more focus on how much capital you're raising, where it's going, the nature of the balance sheet. You know, Whereas in, in biotech, I think you have more latitude just around deal sizes. At the time of IPO, there's a little more focus on traditional, what I call traditional ECM metrics, which are deal size and percentage of market cap, et cetera. Shifting gears momentarily to to services broadly defined, where do you think activity comes from in that area? Yeah, I think it's interesting because that there are, unlike I would say, you know, other subverticals, there's a little bit of a visible shadow backlog, if that's a term I can use, in the sense that there are kind of a couple of deals out there that that I think people are are somewhat aware of in in various spots within kind of healthcare services broadly. And they tend to be in niches where I think there's been good performance. So it could be skilled nursing, it could be behavioral, could be value-based care. Some are privately owned by entrepreneurs. Most are private equity held that I think at some point in 24, you know, could come to market due to some of the dynamics we talked about earlier, just around private equity portfolios, vintages. So, so there certainly are, I think, examples where private equity firms are putting more money to work, uh, certainly even in the public market. But with that said, I think they've got one eye on potential monetization events uh, and the other on thinking about, well, what's in my portfolio that I can either take public or, or think about some kind of dual track. But I do think there are, are you know, various levers that, that these owners can push and pull around monetization that, that they're thinking about. And I think that means that while we'll see a pickup in IPO activity in, in services, I think you'll see other forms of monetization events as well. Yeah. And then maybe, maybe to just round out on that last final sub-vertical, broadly defined again on the digital health or HCI side of things. My, my belief, and I think this is shared by, by you and by, by investors as well, is there is no more disruption is, is, is necessary than in healthcare from a technology perspective to really just modernize technology infrastructure across the broad landscape as a whole. I do think that the HCI universe does represent a very viable and, and potentially high source of supply for, for IPO product. That said, it does feel like many of those will come towards the back half of the year or maybe even into early 2025. I think a number of those businesses are thinking about ensuring that they can forecast the business appropriately, uh, having just lived through the economic cycle that we're all going through, whether we were in a recession or close to a recession, just having certainty on what the forecastability of a business is clearly an important ingredient when you think about accessing the public markets and needing to stick to that regular cadence of, 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 of outperforming on your quarterly call. So again, another vibrant area of conversations. There are a handful of businesses that I think could come earlier, just given how scaled they are and, and the fact that they fit very nicely into some of the, the key parameters that investors generally think would characterize those companies as top quality and towards the upper echelon of financial profiles that are publicly available to invest in currently. Uh, so hopefully some of those get pulled forward and executed against at reasonable valuations. And again, that will lay the groundwork for more companies to come public thereafter. But we can't go with a weekly meeting without uh, joking about the, the GLIP1 phenomena and what that ultimately means. It's, it's clearly something that's taken over conversations across a range of sectors. I'll put it to you, Jason. Where do we stand with that GLIP1 trade right now? Yeah, look, I think, and, and I would point anybody on the call to a, a research piece that our 
our team published not just around biotech, but but certainly you know second, third derivative opportunities. I'm sure people are are, are certainly aware of those. I, I think the you know, is notably, and I referenced earlier that without mentioning it, the, the Roche acquisition of Carmot off of the the registration statement and, and the price paid there, which was circa I two billion three billion dollars, and reflecting on an IPO that again without perfect detail would probably have come at a you know significantly lower valuation. So highlights the strategic interest directly in GLP ones, but certainly other, I think just in the, the metabolic OBC space, obviously in, in our, you know, certainly our biotech coverage colleagues can can expand upon on that perspective. So I think there are going to be a lot of ways to win and a lot of opportunity to to invest. And I think there are absolutely going to be tailwinds and potentially some headwinds for, for other other sectors, whether it be med tech, value-based care, or what have you. But but I do think navigating the environment will be a marathon, not a sprint, because I think this is going to play. I think we all believe it's going to play out over a long period of time. So I think you have to look through some of the near-term volatility and, and try to think strategically, which I think our research team has done a nice job of just around you know, how to play this over the long term. Fair points. I think one of the other one of the other questions that we're getting with increased cadence is what about the election cycle, which feels like people are finally waking up to the fact that it's kind of just around the corner. And what does that ultimately mean for the capital markets calendar? We've sliced and diced the data historically a number of different ways. And I think you can come to different conclusions based on the data that you look at as to whether or not the, uh, the calendar stays open or closed through the actual election cycle itself. I think there's evidence in certain markets that has stayed open. There's evidence in certain uh, certain election cycles that it's uh, that it's been a bit more closed. What is clearly evident, though, in almost all instances, is that capital markets activity tends to get accelerated for the first half. So whether or not it persists through the election cycle itself is a bit of an unknown. But the fact the, the fact of the matter is, that you can just look back to 2020 and look what the 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 notion of the uncertainty around the election caused in the capital markets, which was a clear acceleration of activity by a number of companies that sprinted towards the public markets. That was enabled in, in that in that window by the SPAC mania that took place. That was the off-ramp that many companies chose at that time point to yeah. accelerate their issuance activity. But I think it is a, a good reminder of what is likely to happen. Uh, if there is a window to execute, I think many companies will choose to do that to avoid the uncertainty that is likely to come in the back half of the year as we do approach the, uh, the election dynamics, which will be volatile, I think, to say the least, if there is a, a consensus view, that's probably what it is. So with that, maybe we'll just close with a couple of bold predictions for, for 2024. Jason, I'll let you give yours first, and then I'll, I'll wrap with mine. I'm going to say there will be 40 plus healthcare IPOs in 2024 across across levels. And I think and 23 was in in the low teens, but I'm hopeful given you know everything that John and I talked about here that and it may be heavily second half 24 weighted, but I think we have a, a good shot. I think we're going to see the return of the opportunistic biotech financing in particular in a very uh, pronounced and robust way, just given all the uh, dynamics we talked about with respect to how these deals have performed this year, uncertainty that's likely to come in the back half. joining us for another episode of Pathfinders. This episode was recorded on December 13th, 2023. If you're enjoying Pathfinders, don't miss an episode. Subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to continue this conversation or are interested in more information, please contact your RBC representative directly or visit our website at rbccm.com forward slash biopharma. See you all next time.
This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.